Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. This is another Tactical Tuesday, short form conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice to build your solar business and career. You know, back in the days when we originally launched the Tactical Tuesday as a way to give you more information and insight, it really was geared towards subject matter experts that could really parse data for us on how to know when to use what where. As you no doubt recognized through the subject of today's episode, we're going to be talking about foundations for utility scale solar. If you did not get that ground screws is referent to utility scale solar, then my guess is you're probably not in that sector. You should stick around anyway, because this is nevertheless a really interesting conversation. One that'll help you as you're walking around the halls of Solar Power International, now RE plus to understand another side of the business, the side that is deploying gigawatts of solar right now. And as I think about the conversation around deploying gigawatts of solar, we naturally start to think about how and when do we know that we're sort of running out of the easy, flat terrain that was so prevalent a decade ago, where we deployed all across the desert, all across the fertile farm fields, and now we have to start getting into the, I would say, more edge cases for sure. And that is where the foundation conversation really meets the ground, as it were, really comes home to conversation at an engineering level of how do we optimize the system. And I think it's a discussion that just usually doesn't get a whole lot of airtime, but it's one that really can uh, manifest a world of hurt on developers in project delays and uh, all other kinds of cost implications. Given that most folks probably understand how foundations in terms of driven piles work because it's the most prevalent form of foundation. I wanted to bring in an expert today who really understands the other side, the alternative to driven piles, uh, that being ground screws. The guest expert today is Mike Ferrone. Mike is the director of engineering for TerraSmart. And few would argue that in the world of ground screws, TerraSmart is a dominant leader. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun, interesting conversation with Mike that will illuminate you around why, in fact, ground screws do matter and how you can know whether they matter for your project or not. I'm super happy that you've chosen to be with us here and level up your skills, Solar Warrior. You can learn more about this and many other topics in the now more than 500 episodes that we call the Canon of Suncast over at mysuncast.com. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. Well, as I mentioned, Dr. Ferrone of TerraSmart is the Director of Engineering. He is a geotechnical engineer specifically, and he has so much experience with his hands and feet in the dirt that he has acquired the moniker Dr. Dirt. Without further delay, I'd like to invite you to Suncast, Mike. It's good to see you. Hey, Nico. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure, Mike. And uh, I want to start with the obvious uh, moniker that I just outlined. I'd love to hear more about how you acquired the nickname Dr. Dirt and tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up getting into the solar industry. 
Sure. Yeah. So the first, the doctor part of that nickname started off where I was at the University of Florida doing research for the design of uh, deep foundations. And then mm-hmm. uh, as I was kind of finishing up school, I felt academia might not be the right spot for me. So I was looking towards mm-hmm. industry and, you know, solar was interesting as it was a, a growing industry, a, you know, it's kind of a startup environment. And there was a good opportunity um, back in my hometown at TerraSmart to help with their grounds crews and having a background in geotechnical design and deep foundations really kind of synergized with what was going on there, there at the time. And, you know, getting to work with all the guys down there, um, eventually it was kind of a joking thing because I was a doctor and then dealing with all the geotech stuff and the dirt, the nickname Dr. Dirt came up and it's kind of grown and been a term of endearment and um, recognition at the same time. Do you wear it as like a badge when you're at, uh, at the solar conferences? I don't, I do have a, a ping pong Jersey, uh, that has Dr. Dirt on the back of it. You know, we're laughing, but I expect that if you guys wear your ping pong uniforms to, uh, to RE plus that you're going to wear the one that says Dr. Dirt. I'm going to come look for it. Oh yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. Fantastic. Well, it's just around the corner. So I look forward to seeing you guys in person anyway. And for those who are unfamiliar, the TerraSmart booth is like one of the most fun places to be at RE plus formerly SPI. If for no other reason than they have perennially been the best dressed. And I don't mean like in fine suits, I mean in track suits and they're like genuinely fun to hang around. But I think it's disarming because people see you as fun, but you're actually one of the, uh, one of the groups that have such a breadth of experience in not just the geotechnical side of the business, but project development broadly. I mentioned for those who haven't listened yet in the Dean Vukovic episode that there are now four legacy companies in the uh, Gibraltar family of businesses that we now call TerraSmart. Um, and what you're re- referencing is one of the businesses that was acquired into this family. Now the whole brand is TerraSmart. I've said before, I think it's one of the best uh, rebrands in the industry. So I'll get off the uh, so the high praise for TerraSmart for a moment to actually let's get into the conversation around foundations because it really is one of the little understood technical areas that is a science related to how solar projects come together. Could you orient us a bit to the things around subsurface conditions that you find people generally are unclear about or altogether unknowing, what are you building on top of and how does that have a dramatic impact on the overall cost structure of a utility scale solar plant? Yeah. So you got to build on top of something at the end of the day for these sites. And so you got to really understand what is underground. You could generically categorize them as uh, sites with sand, clay, uh, various types of rock, cobbles, boulders, or even bedrock. And kind of really understanding what's underground can lead to what type of foundation you need to select for that site. Mike, you interact with a lot of developers. Many of the largest have been customers for TerraSmart. Do you find that geotechnical expertise is often in-house for developers or they outsource that in some way? And, And how does that often get related to the overall timing of a project and complexity of the engineering? I find it you kind of have kind of two different categories. One where you might have someone with in-house experience. They actually have a geotech background and they've moved into the solar industry like myself, or, you know, they just have experience from the 10 years plus they might've been working in the industry to kind of get a feel for what these sites might be like. And, you know, that's their interpretation of the geotech reports, site walks, things like that, where they start to try and get a, a feeling of what type of foundations required for a project. Yeah. Do the project permits require some sort of the way that you see 
structural engineering requirements for CNI, and people are probably familiar with needing get stamps. Are utility scale projects similar where you need professional stamped engineering on these types of calculations before the projects can move forward? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So you're you're designing basically based on a pull test, trying to confirm the design and the capacity of the foundation that you're working with. That needs to be, you know, uh, wrapped up in the structural calculations and stamped for those projects to be permitted and, and undergo an IE review. And generally that is, when you say pull test, it is referring to the character of the soil that the foundation is going to be placed in, right? The friction, the, uh, the, the strength required to literally pull the foundation out of the ground. Correct. Yeah. So there are methods to estimate the capacity of a foundation. Mm -hmm. Those tend to be conservative, which means more cost to your project. And so, you know, the more ideal situation is you actually go install that foundation and try and pull out the ground to prove how much capacity that foundation can hold. Well, before I jump to the specific uh, topic at hand, could you outline for those who may be less familiar, what are generally the accepted forms of foundation that large scale ground mount systems use today? Large scale, the predominant foundation, it will be a driven pile. So that might be an H section or an I-beam or uh, depending on the soil conditions, maybe a C-channel. We talk about a fixed tilt system. And then a smaller portion of the market would be a ground screw used on a lot in the Northeast and Rocky sites. And then a minimal amount might be if it pencils out a bowel solution or even some cases a helical pile. I didn't hear you say like drilling and pouring concrete in a hole, which is how we, I first started doing ground mount systems. <laughs> well, you know, that goes back into, you know, what, what are you going to end up running into when you go underground? And so on paper, it's nice. The idea of just driving hundred percent of your piles and not hitting anything or having to modify that design. But the reality is on some of these sites, there's big boulders, cobbles, a sloping bedrock surface where a portion of your site might require some sort of remediation, which we call a refusal, which might include basically fixing that pile where you try and redrive it at another location. Maybe it's in hard enough soil where you can cut it off and pull test to show that it is adequate. Or in extreme cases where you can't do that, you might actually have to drill out a hole wider than that I-beam and backfill with concrete or other soil to get the embedment depth that's required for the project. Sounds expensive. I know that one of the upfront decisions early on, I assume in choosing a foundation is price, kind of like everything else. So I think what we're going to find in this discussion today, at least as I uh, was was reviewing the really well-developed white papers you guys have written, uh, co-authored by yourself on the decisions around driven piers versus ground screws, is that it's not always a first cost decision. But first, let's back out to, uh, you used the term helical peers, and I wanted to sort of ask a question around that. Can, can you help me understand where does this idea of, of helical peers or you know, the alternative to driven piles, where does it originate? And is it something, how did it, how did it migrate to the solar industry? So there's, there's two types of what we call ground anchors that are in the industry, a ground screw and a helical pile. A helical pile is a basically, you know, it might be a three inch diameter tube. And at the very bottom of it, there might have a large flange or helix at the bottom that might be eight to 12 inches wide. And those are really installed for softer soil conditions. They have a lot of difficulties if there's rocks or cobbles that get stuck in that helix and end up, you know, basically causing a refusal to install that helical pile. And then on the flip side, which is more prevalent, is a ground screw 
which is, you know, basically the same tube diameter, but now the flighted portion, you have a, a continual spiral thread that's over basically the bottom two feet of that object. And having that narrow thread, you can really install into a lot of different ground conditions from soft soil sites to rocky sites where you have a, a pilot hole pre-drilled for it prior to install. Okay. In my 17 years in the industry, it's the first time I actually understood that there's like a difference between ground screw and helical pier. So I appreciate that. I hope that I'm not the only one who is standing here scratching my head, wondering how it took me so long to learn that, especially since I've uh, kind of known about the products that you guys have for a long time. That's super helpful. Taking that into consideration then, are there proprietary elements in how ground screws work? Like you mentioned different lengths. I think uh, these flanges or flights can often have different diameters and and distances. Can you kind of unpack for me? I want to make sure I understand first the types of attachments and then the scenarios in which they are useful. Sure. I guess so at the top of this screw, you'll basically see two different types of connections. You'll see a basically a, a welded flange on top of the screw. So it's a plate with holes to kind of make an adjustment for an attachment of a top post. Or you might see it on a lot of TerraSmart racking products, a telescoping leg feature where you have set bolts to connect the leg post to the ground screw. And that's, that's clever. That brings, that proprietary? It's not proprietary, but it's something that is very useful in terms of dealing not only with a rocky site, but now you're talking about being able to pick up a considerable amount of undulations and slopes on projects. So it pairs well when you talk about these simple sites are no longer available. <laughs> now you're able to have a solution that solves a site that's both rocky and have high slope terrain. And then what about under the soil? So under the soil, for our design, we have basically a a similar threaded portion of the ground screw, and we're really just varying the length. And that length is sized per project based on kind of soil conditions along with frost heave conditions. A big thing for us is making sure we get those threads embedded below the frost depth to ensure there's no additional pullout or interference there. Yeah. And it, and it looks very much like what you would imagine if you haven't seen this before, like the kind of a screw that you might use as an anchor into sheetrock or whatever for your house. I mean, oversimplifying it here, but I remember the first time I saw a ground screw in its simplest form, it reminded me of that like plastic one that you drill into the drywall and then you put the screw inside of it and it anchors it down. How does the length of the screw and the size of the flange differentiate? Because you mentioned that the helical piers have bigger uh, flange or flights. And I could see how that'd be problematic in the rocky soils that you guys are using up in the Northeast. Yeah. So the size of the the threaded portion, which is roughly a half inch diameter wider than the tube section itself, those narrow threads allow that to basically progress through rocky soils. And, you know, based on our experience in the field, we can basically pilot drill a hole to accommodate the size of that thread and the soil conditions to ensure that it's It's only a half an inch. Only half an inch. Yep. But you have That's two nuts. feet of that thought, continually. <laughs> I've seen them in person. I didn't know it was a half an inch. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when people see me in person, they think I'm taller than I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I apologize to uh, interject there with a comedic uh, break. I'll let you carry on with the thread. The thread, yeah. Lots of puns <laughs> for uh, ground screws and ground conditions um, available. Yeah, so really you have this threaded portion and like I said prior, you're sizing it to get it below the frost step line. And really that's the overall length that we control that controls that design, uh, depending if it's a really rocky site or if it's a heavy frost heave site.
If you're hearing this right now, it's because it's not yet the end of the RE Plus conference in Anaheim. Maybe it hasn't even begun yet. And you should go take all the questions that you're formulating in your mind right now that you want to ask Dr. Dirt and go meet him at booth 1104 right on the show floor in Anaheim. That's right. Go to the TerraSmart booth. Get your questions answered. It's hard to miss them. They're right by the entrance, and the TerraSmart folks do tend to stand out at these trade shows. So go find Dr. Dirt at booth 1104. All right, back to the show. You mentioned uh, a couple of terms, right, that I think are pertinent in determining when you use what type of foundation. Early on, you said it really comes down to refusal. And as I read the white paper that you wrote, this 10 megawatt site in particular, where you do an excellent comparative analysis, it comes in large part down to the refusal rate of driven piles on a site. Could you just help me understand then, what does refusal mean? Maybe restate it. And how is the risk of refusal determined across a large, you know, hundreds of acres site such that somebody can make a determination on what technology to, to use? Yeah. So a refusal first is when you're trying to drive a pile to a, a specified embedment depth underground and you hit something that impedes you from reaching that embedment depth. And so now you have a, a decision, a problem basically of you're not meeting an engineering requirement. And so how do you ensure that that pile has the capacity that's required. And so you can either do a pull test on that pile to show that it, it's, it's fine. You might've hit some very dense soil and then you have to cut it off the top and then redrill it. Or you might have to move that pile a little bit to the left or right, east or west and drive it again to see if you can reach that depth. These are all additional costs at the end of the day that we're talking about. And then it can get worse from there where you talk about, well, now, you know, you really have an issue. You can't really be messing around coming back and, you know, modifying a pile. You have to actually get up production numbers so you can meet project deadlines. And so you start to get into a world of needing to actually drill out a hole in the ground that's, you know, it could be six to 10 inches wide and backfilling it with some soil or even concrete and then setting that pile in there. And those are all things that add cost to a project and they all add additional time to a project. And it's basically, if it's not known up front, it's a huge risk and a huge problem for a project execution. It bears the question for me, when then are foundations typically decided for a project? Because it seems paradoxical that you would have to think about refusal while driving piles because it's a little late at that point. Yeah, I mean, there there is opportunities to try and quantify that. One would be that geotech investigation where you go on site and you're doing, you know, your SPT borings or you're doing test pits to dig out the earth and see what's actually under there. You can go even further along where you actually, during the pull test investigation, you might pull test a lot of a lot of spots or test a lot of spots to try and get a more accurate categorization of what that refusal risk or percentage would be for a site. How early in the development of a site is that done typically? Like I would say in the arc of development, how far, how much time passes between like that kind of thing that you, that activity and either ordering or delivering the foundations to site? You know, we see projects that, kind of different <laughs> development rates, let's say, but you probably see the geotech investigation done up for early on in development as mm -hmm. kind of a, a pre-screening. And then depending on the developer or the EPC that's working on a project, that's probably closer towards delivery when they're doing that, mm -hmm. you know, in more in-depth pile of driving investigation. So who do you typically see drives that foundation discussion on these large scale projects then? Yeah. I think when you talk about 
for the EPC that's selecting a racking manufacturer, you know, they are really just selecting a foundation at the same time in most cases. And, and in that case, you know, that's heavily driven by price. And then it's also driven by risk appetite of the EPC or their knowledge base of subsurface conditions, depending on how they actually worked in that area before. That's really helpful, actually. So I'd like to, if, if now is appropriate, maybe take a moment and navigate the risk versus reward, given that ground screws do typically represent a higher cost. And if EPCs are typically making these decisions, typically guided by price, there are caveats around the idea of first cost versus actual sort of construction implications on these sites. You all, I mentioned in the outset, have several fantastic white papers that I'll link to for those who want to dig deeper that outline the case for when to choose. And as I mentioned before, TerraSmart represents not just ground screws. You have you have fixed tilt driven piles. You have tracker ground screw applications within the purview of your organization, which is one thing that I think is fascinating about how you approach the navigate the framework. Could you talk about Navigating that risk versus reward with the developers that you engage in? You're correct about a ground screw upfront cost more. So then it's, you know, you start to have to assess the sites and start talking about risk and who owns, uh, you know, a big discussion is who owns, who owns the subsurface risk. And, you know, that risk can be really quantified in terms of what's the percent of refusals that you might encounter on a project. And so you might assume something low, you might not have a lot of information and you're not sure about that. And then that risk, depending on that percentage, can add a significant amount of cost um, or time to a project. And so you're talking about the white paper in there. And, you know, kind of a, we put an example in there of a 10 megawatt project where basically if you assume a 50 percent refusal cost and you understand the rate of production for different types of refusal remediation processes and in install rates for ground screw versus a pile and the costs associated with each we kind of came up with this analysis that show that for 10 megawatts and a 50% refusal rate, you might be looking at adding almost a cent or two per watt to your project on that alone. And that include, and then that would also include a delay of almost a month and time to try and install those 50% refusals on a site like that. And not only that, for those who haven't read um, the, the sort of takeaways here on, it's a wild swing on what you categorize as soft site piles and screws versus high refusal piles and screws. The delta is almost twice the cost at the end of the day when you do the cost accounting on not just the the equipment and but the schedule delays. I mean a hundred thousand dollar total loss delay in the delay cost, which I found is um, in my experience the frankly the much more costly expense for these projects. Yeah, when you start to run up on LDs, the headaches of <laughs> trying to coordinate in the field, all those things and wasting a lot of people's time. Yeah, that adds up and can be quite painful yeah. for some of these projects. Yeah. So you even admit in the white paper that you use 50% refusal as a baseline just to get a sense of uh, fair comparison. Did you come up with any conclusions that you could share around the variables within which or the windows within which it really does make a clear cost benefit and uh, break even and swing towards ground screws for most developers? Yeah. So in that paper, we talk about basically essentially a break even analysis on when you Mm -hmm. need to start looking or making decisions. And kind of what we found based on those numbers is when you get to a range between 20 and 30%, that's when you should really start to consider use of a ground screw in a project, because that's when you're going to start basically saving money 
going with a grounds crew solution over a driven pile based on that percent of refusals. Well, Mike, we've talked a lot about generalities. I'd love to get into some specifics in, in fact, I'd like to hear from you some direct project examples that might help illuminate for us some of the specific concerns. You actually have a quite thorough white paper on the topic of frost heave, which you've brought up a couple of times here. Do you have any specific projects that represent how frost heave can really create specific concerns for developers and how it was and how it was mitigated by using ground screws? Yeah, so frost heave is a, you know a prevalent issue basically in the northeast region and out midwest where you have basically you need three ingredients for frost heave to occur. You need freezing temperatures, silty soils, and then a water source. And so those are all prevalent in those regions. And so we've seen these on sites where we've been in construction and actually see you know we've installed you know maybe in December and then we we'll go to construction during February and we actually see that the surface has risen as we're building. And we're not talking just like a half inch or anything. We're talking, you know, six inches in certain cases where we actually have concerns from the contractor that the site's sinking and it's just their frame of reference is off that the surface is actually heaving up out of the ground. And so that kind of mechanism, if you don't account for it in your design, can really cause havoc on a system where you're talking about pushing piles up out of the ground and causing a lot of damage to the steel structure itself and even the electrical equipment as well. Mike, I have to imagine that this has happened in real life where developers have actually installed piles in scenarios where they should have used ground screws and th- th- there are, I would imagine, tremendous cost implications. Usually it's too late. It, it's honestly like if it's pile and it's in the ground, it's too late. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so then it's, you're, talking about, you're talking about remediating that site, which might be doing some kind of crazy insulation on the surface or adding additional foundations to provide additional uplift resistance to the piles. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's a disaster <laughs> in terms of cost wise to get those, you're basically doubling your foundation cost on some sites like that. So I think it, a lot of folks would think about frost heave as something that would be common in the Northeast. How far West are we talking that frost heave actually is a concern? I would imagine the frozen Tundra has some frost heave, but where else? Yeah, I'd say yeah, as you get towards Montana, the coastal regions, the temperature fluctuations isn't as high as you get into Washington state and things like that. So it's really, you know, where is that freezing temperature band prevalent out in the Midwest? Yep. And looking at your map, I mean, it even gets into uh, all the way over into the, um, the Dakotas and parts of Nebraska. Uh, I mean, it goes a lot further west than I would have expected. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a problem everywhere. All, a lot of building codes in those types yeah. of regions is a design requirement. So it's definitely something that needs to be considered uh, on the design of these sites. I feel like folks feel that ground screws particularly are a region specific tool. And I was going to ask, how does region of operation affect the foundation decision, which feels a little bit banal at this moment. I think I'd rather ask, do you have any examples where ground screws were the non-obvious choice because people don't realize that it's more than that it's useful in more scenarios than just rocky soils in the in the u.s northeast yeah i mean you know frost heave is definitely a big selling point or a big hurdle that the the grounds crew can overcome and then really it's sites with bedrock caliche soils basalt out west that you see in nevada oregon in california where you know it's basically you can't put anything deeper than a foot in the ground, it is yeah. a big problem. Oh, and caliche. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. Caliche, the bane of every developer who tried to install in, uh, in parts of Texas and Arizona. Basically it's a concrete sidewalk, a foot under the ground. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. You know, you know, Nico, you asked for example, and a, a great example of one of these projects is uh, Turquoise in Reno, Nevada. It's award-winning projects for us, 75 megawatts. I was really in development my entire career at TerraSmart to start with for almost four years wow. to start where, you know, they're trying to figure out a cost-effective solution. They're really trying to f- push piles on that project. They were having difficulties even during load testing to make that happen. And we went out there and showed them for the site like that is kind of our bread and butter where you have high slope terrain along with this kind of shallow bedrock basalt that's on the site that we can install screws cost effectively and timely to execute that project. And where is this located? In Reno, Nevada. In Reno. Or just outside. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of high desert. Um, And I I would assume, as you said, basalt. Did they try driven piers? Well, you said four years. I mean, how did the project get stalled? So the project, I guess, was in constant development and, you know, just trying to find the right, I guess, price point (laughs) at the end of the day. And it's just, it wasn't feasible that a pile could be driven on that site just because of that shallow bedrock along with the slope terrain. And, you know, we were in early, you know, making our case and eventually, (laughs) (laughs) guess what? They came back to TerraSmart and our ground screw solution to help build that project. Well, Dr. Dirt, I imagine there's a bunch of opportunity for clients to need educating and arrive at, I might call them aha moments along the way. And I'm curious, since you've been at this for quite a while, what are some of those aha moments where maybe folks were skeptical about ground screws and in the evaluation process, they begin to really understand why ground screws matter? Yeah, I would say, so the aha moments that we've seen with some of our clients is really ends up on the project execution side of things where they have, you know, strict timelines. There's no wiggle room to kind of mess around because they're up against LDs, things like that. And, you know, part of what the ground screw solution offers is, you know, we're pre-drilling a hole, we're installing a screw, we're maintaining our velocity throughout the project, not impacting that construction schedule. And so, you know, when you execute and you can deliver that, those clients are super happy and they start to understand, hey, I didn't have to, any headaches <laughs> to deal with in terms of installation of the foundation. And that, you know, in some cases can help save a project and pull it back in. That stood out for me, actually looking, looking at one little small column uh, called number of days of installation. Because while a lot of folks will say like driven piles are faster on a 10 megawatt project, it's four days difference in install, Right. Uh, and of course, we, you can extrapolate that over, over 100 megawatts. I'm sure it actually isn't the exact sort of linear delta, but I have been surprised at the relative efficiency and consistency, to your point, of how fast these things go in. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're no strangers to what the solar coaster <laughs> encompasses, where <laughs> there's a lot of uncertainties about what module you're getting. Are you getting enough modules? So you're dealing with a lot of... Mm-hmm problems up front. And then now you have to execute that project where you've had it pushed because of certain issues. And now you, but you still have to deliver at the end of the day. And, mm. you know, a ground screw provides that regardless of what you're going to run into underground, because we're taking care, we're mitigating that refusal risk hundred percent. Well, Mike, putting on my project developer hat here, it seems like working with ground screws gives you hundred percent refusal risk lim- mitigation. You can minimize or eliminate grading altogether on the site. Uh, I would imagine there are other civil uh, expenses as well that could be, they could be sort of clawed back as it were. I'm just thinking about the balance as you're thinking, what's the, 
overall cost. And I will po- point folks to this, to the two case studies where you do the comparison because they're, I think it illuminates really clearly, not just in hours and unit costs, but in dollars per watt and dollars and cents, the, the comparison uh, that you guys have made. But everybody loves a feel-good story, Mike. Do you have any examples of projects where, where you guys were able to bear, bring to bear the example of having your in-house geotech and your proprietary systems actually gets projects across the finish line faster than expected? Yeah, a good one is a recent project for us in Connecticut, I think a little over 60 megawatts where we had to deliver that within seven months. And we're talking foundations installed and modules <laughs> installed. Yeah. And so, but seven months from, from, what, from what point? Like from the day that you got the order or the day that you were like out doing, the developer was out doing like geotech studies and trying to decide what to do? From the day we got the order. So we got to start making material because we're also a racking manufacturer and then also get screws on site, install the screws, erect the racking structure and install the modules. Well, if that was any time in 2022, I would say that is a record time given the logistics uh, hurdles we all have been facing. Yeah, it's quite amazing feat for the company. Mike, I feel like we've covered a lot of the things that people would assume they understand about the places that you would expect to find a comparison of ground screw versus a driven pile. Are there any unexpected or edge cases or just uh, interesting examples to sort of put a cap on uh, how and why uh, ground screws serve a very specific role in foundation selection? Sure. Yeah. Well, due to the design of the ground screw, having a, a threaded portion like it does, it's highly effective in uplift resistance. And when you talk about a racking structure or a tracker, it's essentially a wing that the wind is trying to pull up out of the ground. And so when you start to get into sites like out in the Bahamas and the islands where you have these hurricane winds that you need to deal with, a ground screw is a very cost-effective solution because of its tension capacity. And so we've had cases on uh, Necker Island, for example, where we was actually hit by Hurricane Irma and our ground screws were perfectly intact after that event, just showing, you know, the robustness of that design. Mike. I hear you saying the foundation was intact. Was the system itself in, in, intact? I, I can't even imagine a tracker down in the Bahamas surviving. Well, this is our first, it was a fixed tilt system. And oh. we did have a portion of the ray that remained intact. One of the funny things was that due to the inundation from the water, a boat ended up hitting and taking out a portion of the rack, which we could not design. For, but collateral damage, collateral damage, <laughs> but, for that. <laughs> but for those cases, the screws were still in the ground in the same position that they're installed to. And so we basically, yeah. for that site, we erected Success. another foundation or another racking structure right on top of those screws again. Well, you that absolutely is a testament to the strength of the product itself. And uh, a great example where you would expect to, you would expect the foundation to move. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Mike Ferrone, Dr. Dirt. I have learned a ton about how ground screws, how they matter and why they're different from uh, driven piles, the scenarios in which they are useful. As I mentioned a number of times here, you guys have delivered a plethora of insights and uh, white papers, case studies, et cetera. If folks wanted to learn more, where would you direct them? Yeah, if they'd like to read the white papers, you could find them on terrasmart.com forward slash insights. And we got a bunch of case studies and those white papers on there as well. Fantastic. And of course, as always, we link to all the resources on our website as well. We'll redirect you to that terrasmart.com forward slash insights. Well, 
Dr. Dirt, it's been a pleasure to, to see you. Thank you for uh, taking us to school, giving us the professorial approach to how to understand how ground screws work. And I look forward to hanging out with you in Anaheim in a few weeks. I look forward to it too. Thanks for having me on. Congrats on uh, 500 episodes. Thanks, my friend. See you soon. All right. Well, that's a wrap on today's tactical, practical insights for you on why ground screws matter at all. Should you consider them? Do they make sense for your project? I hope you have learned. I certainly did. Not the least of which the difference between helical piers and ground screws. I kind of thought the terms were interchangeable. Did you? What else did you learn? I'd love to hear from you. I know you're going to be hopping online as we are prone to do these days in this digital connected world. So I'd love it if you would drop a note in the LinkedIn post that we've made about this episode and tag someone that you think would need to know the difference of how ground screws work and whether or not they are a cost-effective solution compared to piles. I can think of a ton of uh, developers who probably know enough or think they know enough. And hopefully today we've given a lot more color. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, what these conversations help us do is not just sound, but be smarter in conversations that matter around accelerating the timeline that we deploy renewables. And I mean, what a great example. I think it was 66 megawatts in uh, a recent announcement by TerraSmart, where they were able to get the project done in seven months, which I can tell you, if you have no experience with this, is basically a record-breaking time. It's rare that you can get a project installed that quickly from order to completion. If you're eager to learn more about how ground screws work, as Mike said, you can go to terrasmart.com forward slash insights. And we're going to link to that, of course, if you go to mysuncast.com because you're already there poking around and looking for interesting things, then mysuncast.com forward slash terrasmart is also going to give you insights and access to this episode and a link to their website as well. So you can always just go to mysuncast.com and find the link to this episode and we'll take you right there. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find more resources than that and highlights from this and every other discussion on Suncast, along with social media links for today's guest, Mr. Dr. Dirt himself, and uh, more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. I invite you to come back here on Thursday. You will not want to miss as we have Mr. David Skaysbrook, the co-founder of Quinbrook, a company that just installed the largest solar and battery storage project in the world. That's right. Bringing heavy hitters as we head into the home stretch for RE+. Are you going to be there? I hope you are. I hope you come by and see us at the Power Up Central Media Zone. Of course, swing by and see Dr. Dirt at the TerraSmart booth. It's right beside Shoals, right in the entrance as they tend to be. I'm sure they'll be in their tracksuits. They are a ton of fun. One of my favorite booths to visit. I hope that uh, I get a chance to meet you in person there in RE+. I want to thank once again those who make this content free to you to enjoy so that you can continue learning and furthering your clean energy career. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.